Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode one of the Yet to Be Named podcast with Yet to Be Named subject matter, a problem that we'll get to in a few minutes. We are here in office with our guest this week, which is unusual as we usually conference guests in. And this, to th- this week, we have Sebastian Good with us, who is the owner of a company called Palladium Consulting. They do, uh, well, I'll let him tell you what they do in a minute. But first, he's going to have to listen to us ramble on about our podcast because, I see Matt's here in the notes with me, we're talking again about show names. Yeah. Yeah. So... Matt, why don't you uh, tell the two listeners what we're uh, doing with the Software Underground channel and how they can access that. This is related, by the way, to the show name problem. Yeah, right. So uh, Software Underground, it, well, was, I, th- I think maybe we started a Google, uh, what was that called? Like the mailing list thing, Google Groups, uh, probably three or four years ago. As a, as a way to just sort of have a, an email list that people who are into computers and geoscience could quickly spam all of their friends with cool stuff that they'd found. Because not everyone was on Twitter and blah, blah, blah. And, and, then, uh, and then we started using Slack, or I started using Slack um, probably a couple of years ago for, with Agile stuff and then... Uh, there was a local in Halifax, Nova Scotia, near where I live. A group of developers started using Slack, and um, and I thought, well, we could easily have a Slack channel version of Software Underground. So, I invited a bunch of people. I actually haven't looked at how how good the overlap is between the mailing list and the and the Slack channel, but you can check it out. Or, I mean, the only way to check it out really is to go join it. Um, It'll be a completely separate channel. If you're already in Slack, you'll see it as a separate, you know, group. Uh, you go to swung.rocks. So that's S-W-U-N-G. That sort of stands for Software Underground somewhat. Uh, swung.rocks. And that, that is a domain name. I know it doesn't sound like a domain name, uh, but that's it. And you should be able to sign up. And it's just chit-chat, basically. And it's free, too, which uh, is my favorite part about it. <laughs> yep, and completely awesome, and there's often really good uh, chat in there. Slack's really awesome anyway, so you can share all sorts of stuff. Um, but yeah, the, when we were chatting about the podcast, it seemed like it was quite well aligned, the sort of subject matter that we seem to be putting into the notes and so on, quite well well aligned with Software Underground. So maybe there's a franchise thing going on there. Yeah. The point of the story, though, is that uh, oh, yeah. because we don't have a show name <laughs> and we're, we're going to try to source one from the crowd. So if you want to help us uh, vote on or just randomly choose a new show name, uh, we would love to hear from you. So go to swung.rocks to sign up. It's free. Again, it's totally worth it. There's a whole bunch of information in there. And, um, and pick a show name. So we've got four left on the list. Isn't that right, Matt? That's it. Um, okay, do you want me to so, read them out? I, yes, please do. Uh, so we've I'll, just in in the order that you've written them here. Uh, random noise, quite like that. Undersampled radio. Expirations, which I think is the one that we tentatively penciled in last week, and the last one is software underground radio. Yeah. So check us out on Slack and uh, sign up 
and help us pick a name. Okay, so uh, Matt's at a conference. I have some notes in here about uh, asking him about what he's doing, but uh, Sebastian's looking more and more bored, so I, best, I guess I better have him say something. So, um, Sebastian, say hello. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Uh, so tell us about Palladium, a little, a little brief intro. You know, Palladium was my solution to the dot-com crash. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, I was thrown wildly uh, into the masses of the unemployed and uh, thought I should start looking for uh, honest work. But while I was doing that, uh, some people kind of called me up and said, Hey, have you found a, a job yet? And I said, No, we all got pretty nice severance. So, uh, you know, I'm not looking too hard. They said, Well, while you're doing that, could you, could you do this little thing for us? Could you come in and, and fix whatever? And uh, write a little program. So I got a little contract with uh, Time Warner up in Austin and another company in Austin that's long since gone. That's where I was living at the time. And, you know, the months kind of went by and I ended up having too much to do at, at one company. And so another friend of mine that had been thrown out into the wild uh, came and joined me and she and I did some work. And all of a sudden it was a year later and I realized I wasn't doing a very good job of looking for honest work. <laughs> and uh, here we are 15 years later. There's 13 of us and we've gone on this adventure building all kinds of uh, fantastic custom software most of which has been uh, in the oil and gas business which is why i find myself in with you a shaggy lot here in new orleans <laughs> so what kind of industries have you guys worked for well so the the bulk of our work has been in oil and gas and we've been uh, spending lots of time in upstream exploration subsurface software right uh, seismic interpretation processing Basin modeling, uh, Monte Carlo simulations of uh, uh, prospects, all, all the usual exploration stuff. And uh, along the way, we've done a number of little things. We're, uh, we just signed a contract last uh, week to build a bond trading platform <laughs> for treasury bonds. We're working for the Japanese uh, AT&T. They're called Docomo. They have a research lab where a bunch of mad-haired scientists have built some sort of fascinating machine learning algorithm, but they uh, don't really know how to make it look like anything or build a product around it. And that's kind of the heart of what we do at Palladium, is work with the mad scientists who uh, have ideas, brilliant ideas, geoscientists or bond traders or whatever, experts, right? Uh, but those guys, they can write a simple program or they can have a brilliant idea, but turning it into something that you can see on a map or visualize in 3D or get into a database or distribute around the world or just all the kind of stuff that has to happen to turn it into a real product. That's what we do. So it's awesome. I get paid to learn new domains and build cool software for people. I love it. I saw, uh, again, our two listeners can't see this, but uh, when you mentioned machine learning, I saw Matt's eyes light up and he wanted to say something about something. <laughs> oh, I was What's just going to ask uh, like about getting into oil and gas. Is that do you think that's just because you, you were in Texas and that's what sort of came around? Or were you looking? Were there problems there that you were especially interested in? Or how did that happen? No, I, I have a very basic theory of how uh, software developers make their money, which is that they have to hop from bubble to bubble. So when I graduated, it was the dot-com bubble. And uh, I worked for a company out of Austin called Trilogy doing really cool stuff. And when I got laid off, really, in '01. that was the beginning of what kind of this big oil bubble that has popped. There were a few up and downs, but... Um, my family lives in Houston, and so I knew a lot of people in the business and uh, got some introductions into uh, one of the leading integrated oil companies in the world. They really don't like us to say uh, that, that, that we work for them. I'm not sure why that is. Why a company that has private armies all around the world and 
is, is scared of uh, having their logo on my website. I still don't understand. But anyway, got some contacts in. You know how it works, right? Once you do one good project, then word spreads around and we couldn't escape. So it really wasn't a, a strategy of ours. It was just the bubble that was being inflated and it was a ton <laughs> of good fun. And now that the bubble has popped, guess what? <laughs> Big surprise, we're going to the world of finance or machine learning. There's always other cool bubbles being inflated that uh, that need neat work done. Well, the, the cool thing about the machine learning bubble is it's, uh, it, I mean, you know, it's it, it's not a vertical, you know, it's a, it's a horizontal bubble. So you can potentially go do that, you know, maybe, maybe it's a, a tool set that makes it easier to get into other bubbles, like, I don't know, healthcare, you mentioned finance, whatever. No, I think that's exactly right. In the car on the way over here to New Orleans, we were with a bunch of people uh, that live in Houston. Uh, I live in Houston most of the time, and we're all kind of lamenting, oh, what's going to happen as oil goes to $0 a barrel? And uh, yeah, I said, guys, you know, you, you're a business consultant that's driving, and you're a, a mechanical engineer in the passenger seat, and I'm a programmer, and, you know, we can do stuff that's not oil. Jesus, imagine you're a geochemist, and all you know about is, you know, source rock somewhere that's that's the guy that's screwed right <laughs> yeah thanks <laughs> so as you guys probably know uh i work on seismic data <clears throat> so i'm screwed matt works no matt's you're a you're a somewhat of a renaissance man do all sorts of things that's you should be fine right <laughs> yeah I, but I, but i mean we are you know since a year ago much more deliberately trying to unpeel it's like trying to peel a sticker off, <laughs> trying to unpeel ourselves from, you know, we were pretty petroleum focused. We've had some other stuff in geothermal, for instance, um, data wrangling, which isn't necessarily just oil and gas. But I mean, last year, last year sucked. <laughs> last year was not awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. So what do you think? Is it uh, is it still an exciting domain to operate in, or are you done with oil and gas? Absolutely not done. In fact, uh, the majority of my company's billings are still into oil and gas, and I've been really surprised last year. You know, my company was contacted like essentially every other supplier in the industry and said, hey, we love working with you guys, but what's going to happen now is we're going to pay you about 20% less, and uh, we understand if that's not cool with you, but it's just how it has to be. Um, and in fact, I think as a software company, we were shielded from the worst of it. I mean, they knew that we had other options. Um, if, if all you own is a drilling rig, I think you get uh, much bigger cram downs. And so that, that part sucked, as you said. And as a business owner, it's frustrating. You're, the profit you make comes from that last 20%. But having said all that, we are still dug into very interesting projects. And I've heard the same thing from many companies, which is that, yes, you're going to have to lay some people off. Yes, this is a quiet time. But... Maybe this is the time to really invest in some of the things that we just don't have time to invest in when we're all going pedal to the metal. So we're involved with a kind of a, a rethinking uh, process at, at, at our big client where they're figuring out how to integrate all the software that they have and that they've written themselves or bought from other places that there's just never time to do. Hmm. And yeah, they're going to let some people go, but the people that they're keeping are the people who have been there forever and have really deep understanding. And uh, we're actually doing some cool work there, bringing together uh, imaging, interpretation, reservoir engineering, seismic processing, uh, trying to get it all together into one place. It's fun. I bet it is. It sounds like you, you're running the gamut there of, of geophysics, geology, model building. It's, that's awesome. Well, for us, we're just the programmers. So we get to tag along with all the smart people who actually know this stuff and do useful things. But uh, 
the scale of work involved at integrating all these data sets, the size of them, the performance needs that are that are required are, are a ton of fun. You know, the other industries we go to, you tend to see the same toolkits over and over again. Oh, make a REST API, throw it on the web, and it's all good. $40 a month, swipe your credit card. And I think there's a future for that kind of software in oil and gas, no doubt. But a lot of the stuff that's built to manage, uh, you know, the guts of other companies just doesn't work when you're talking about terabyte seismic data sets or massive 3D visualizations. And so we get to be kind of on the cutting edge that a lot of other people don't see. Are you excited about big data? And, and how do you think big data relates to seismic data? I, I have a private theory that, uh, that oil companies were doing big data and cloud processing before it got called that. And, uh, you know, how big is big, really? I've had clients say, we need help with our big problem. And then we get to them and say, how big is your database? And they say, gosh, it's almost four gigabytes. <laughs> <laughs> and turns out they were having a ton of uh, problem with it. I think big data is data that's just too big for you to actually handle with the software stack you've got. You have to either redefine your problem or get a new stack. And the nature of the data is very different. The oil industry loves to talk about how big seismic data it is. Uh, and it's huge, right? Like yes. A terabyte of data is massive. Sure. But it's actually just one data set. And it's highly, highly regular. And there's very particular things you can do with it. A terabyte of seismic data is it both at once more terrifying than a terabyte of tweets. And also yes. much, much easier. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, big data, I think, is a marketing nonsense word. I'm going to have to eat those words if... Uh, I end up having to marketing that on my uh, website to get more business, Grant. But uh, I'm on record as saying big data just kind of means nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. Um, Matt, what do you think? I know uh, Matt just, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but Matt wrote a blog article about big data a while back, uh, the big data keyword. And uh, he seems to think, as I, as I understand it from the post, that the big data... Uh, trendy thing now uh, is is not the same with seismic data as it is for the rest of the world. Um, I, yeah, what I was really getting at in that post was, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with Sebastian that, you know, I mean, for years, really, since people started using the phrase big data, oil and gas people have been like, Dah. you know, we, we've, we've been doing that for years. And, and that's sort of true. I think the, me- the mechanics of um, of getting that data around and, and making you know making useful decisions with it, yeah, they have been doing that for years. That that is true. Although you know mostly from the stack, and the stack is like one percent of the data, um, or you know, or an average, a, a massive reduction. Um, or I don't know. You go and look at the data management practices in even big, awesome oil companies, and they're they're pretty horrible. I mean, it's pretty bad. It's almost as I mean, I, you know, I'd maybe, maybe be careful how far I go with this, but I mean, I'd say it's almost neglectful how poor the data management is in most subsurface scientific environments that I've been in. I've, I'm hard pressed to think of one where I've, where I've thought this is this is this is reasonable and acceptable. Um, you know, so so they, they haven't been very good at those. And then the third piece, I think that they also, you know, these sort of not not quite naysayers, but skeptics, if you like. Uh, don't quite realize is that the way that people are extracting insights now from these giant data sets is totally different from how we try and do it in oil and gas on the whole. You know, certainly there are some really awesome um, imaging techniques that I don't understand that are, you know, well-tuned algorithms that arguably that, that learn the solution, you know, the velocity solution. 
Um, but really, no, you've got a giant set of core photographs. You've got tons of wells. You've got tons of awesome 3D data. There's nobody doing like machine learning style insight extraction from that data set. Oil and gas folks are just dim-witted, Matt says. What do you have to say to that, Sebastian? I think it's interesting because in you know, the biggest data you have tends to be the seismic data or, or well data, and so you end up with very specialized pipelines for dealing with it. I mean, you know, a seismic processing system of some maturity is, is really... Uh, very similar to some of the big data solutions you see out there, like a Hadoop or something. It's not that different from what most seismic processing systems look like at their guts. But those systems can only push a lot of traces around. I'm interested Whereas in Whereas a Hadoop systems. system can do, is very, very general purpose. And so I think the guys that are coming at it from outside of oil and gas are coming at it from a much more general perspective with much less specialized tools. And that lets them see the, the data differently. And And I think... The reason that data management is so bad may be one of the reasons that uh, big data is so different, which is that in a lot of other industries, they're less project-based. You know, if you're Facebook, you live forever, and you have a bunch of data forever, and it just goes and goes and builds on itself. And the oil industry has been going on uh, for a long time, true, but it's project by project, right? Once you've built the oil field, then it's time to move on and, and find the next one. And finding the political will and the organizational will to gather all that together uh, is, is very difficult. And then a lot of the experts in, in machine learning or, or big data, frankly, are coming from outside the industry, just for whatever reason that is. And how is a little machine learning startup going to just walk into Exxon and say, give us all your data and we're going to learn from it? <laughs> so what about <laughs> Exxon can't even find it to begin with. <laughs> Do you have to fight your clients to, to utilize modern practices? I think so. I think so, because fundamentally, uh, oil and gas is a very, very conservative business. And I think if you found yourself uh, with $50 billion in the bank one day, you'd be a lot more concerned with how not to lose it than how to try to get real fancy and make it and make it uh, bigger. And so while there is a lot of high technology involved, I think fundamentally, from a business perspective, it's, it's very conservative. And you see a lot of people willing to go take a flyer on the geoscience side of it, and much less so uh, on the IT side of it. And probably I shouldn't say that, because the people that, that hire us... Uh, you know, want to get leading edge work, and I, and I think we do try to bring the best in, but we always follow the geoscience. That is always, at least in subsurface software, that seems to be the key. Here's a new idea. Here's a MATLAB script. Here's a, a sketch on a whiteboard. Here's how we're going to find the next whatever, make it happen. So, what's your dream project uh, in in the next in the next six months if you could land some crazy R and D project that's totally funded by some huge oil company? What would you want to work on? Wow, that's that's a pretty exciting question. Um, maybe because of maybe because of what we've just been talking about, I I, I really do think that uh, being able to integrate very large amounts of data together would help with the decision making in these companies. For instance, as long as I've been in the industry, people have been saying, "Why don't we have a good lineage of all the data?" You know, if, if, if I hit an overpressure or if I find oil where I didn't expect to find it, how do I know why that happened? Mm-hmm. You know, good luck tracing that well log that you finally uh, drilled back to some initial set of decisions or a missed survey or a, a brilliant interpretation or whatever it is. Nobody even has that. Can you imagine if we actually built the graph of decisions, if all this software actually coordinated and it said, hey, this guy chose this velocity model and an image this way, and then he picked this horizon, and then he did this and he that and so on and so forth until we finally drilled it, and we had that whole graph. That's what Google has on the Internet. They have the whole graph of all the work we do together. And so when, when we search on Google, they have this deep, 
deep knowledge that helps them find you know, centrally important data sets that answer the question. In our industry, we just, we just don't have that at all. What if we had that graph and we could connect everything together and we could answer semantic questions? That would be, to me, powerful because I know that the stat I always hear and the stat I've seen over and over is that explorers spend you know, 30, 40, 50, 60% of their time on any given project just finding the data they're supposed to use. That's right. So it's badly managed, but it's also badly searched, and the software is not taking the opportunity it can to stitch it all together. Uh, and I think a lot of people confuse data management for shoving it all in one database to rule them all and forget it's about the insight you can actually extract from it. That's what it would be great to solve as the IT geek, because that's something I feel like you can actually do. So it sounds like your strategy, or, or at least uh, my, my understanding, is that you try to hire uh Developers who are from multiple backgrounds that have uh, some some um, relevant work experience in maybe the data management domain. But uh, what are the type of people that work for you? What are, how do you how do you pick these people? That's a, that's also probably the only really important thing that I know how to do anymore, Graham, because I've forgotten how to do all the other coding and everything. <laughs> um, it's it's very interesting the way we interview. Uh, I think is becoming more and more common now, which is the true heart of our test for a programmer is to ask her to write a program for us. Mm -hmm. um, we'll look at a resume, figure out if they uh, have a have an interesting background, and by that I mean in my company I don't hire the geochemists or the bond traders. I'm not the domain expert. I build the ecosystem around the domain expert to turn it into a product, and so I need people that can learn. I need people that can figure this stuff out quickly, ask intelligent questions, and kind of prioritize what needs to be done. And so, yeah, if someone's gone to a good school, that, that tends to be helpful. But what's more interesting to me when I'm finding someone is the path they've been on. I, I love hiring the guy that kind of screwed up college and didn't know what he wanted to do and finally ended up writing a Haskell program to do uh, genomic scanning for RNA, uh, RNA duplication. That guy is so smart. <laughs> that I have confidence he can go learn whatever else I throw him at. That guy, by, by the way, his name is Mason. He's awesome. Um, no one else is going to look for that guy as a programmer. They want the guy that had a stint at Yahoo and went to Stanford and so on. And mm -hmm. I want the guy that can learn. Uh, and then we have a lunch with him to make sure he doesn't have two heads or you know say something stupid and we can't put him in front of a client. We want you know, communication is 90% of what we do. And then we have him write a program. And it, you can't hide from a bad program. So we ask them to spend a day writing a program uh, based on a spec we've given, and uh, we look at the results, see if it works, see how clean the code is, see what approach they took, and uh, we tend to ask about the same question mm -hmm. for years now, and we can compare the results. We've had pretty darn good luck. How about you, Matt? Similar process? Um, well, I, you know, we, I, I don't have anywhere near as much experience hiring people as Sebastian here, and um, I'm, so I'm, I'm really always really interested to hear how people, how people hire um, yeah, I would say it's not something I've, I've cracked. I mean, I do feel like you know, I've done more, I've been involved in more hiring from a corporate, you know, in my sort of, uh, previous corporate life as a, as a geophysicist in an oil company. Um, and, and I always felt like the, the more, uh, the closer we could get that process to being, a sort of human process of uh, uh, of getting to know someone and the further we could get it from person shows up at trade show has interview with hr sends boring cv um and goes through the quote unquote hiring process 
I felt like the better the results we got. The more it yeah, came you're from... you're ultimately going to be uh, working with someone. And so the, the right. more you can work with them before you hire them, the better off you are. It's great to have an intern that you turn into an employee because then yeah. you figured out what makes them tick. Uh, when we hire a, a sales guy uh, and part of that job is, say, writing cold emails, well, he's going to write some cold emails for us and we'll see what they look like. Um, right. uh, we hire a usability person. We want them to sit down and draw some screens in response to a problem we have. That, to me, the actual sitting down and working a problem, not... Not a brain teaser or what would you do if, but actually sitting down and doing some work together, uh, I think is the only true way. Yeah. I mean, so if you guys want a job, if you're out there listening to this program, do what you love, practice it, practice it, practice it. Yeah. Go sit in front of somebody. Like talk to people about it. You know, a lot of the people I hired into ConocoPhillips, I saw or met at a conference and saw them presenting their work. And yes. went and talked to them about doing an internship or applying for a job. And, I, I, you know, someone asked me just this week, I did some lecturing at Dalhousie University for, for Evan, who's doing a course there. And they were like, oh, you know, I'm juggling like uh, grad school stuff and which, how, how should I go about that? And I, I, I have a really hard time like recommending going to grad school even as a career move. It's like, definitely do that if you just can't stop yourself from doing geophysics or you can't stop reading papers or whatever, go to grad school. But as a career move, I don't know, man. I'm like, you know, if, if, if you're interested in the tech stuff, like start coding and putting your stuff in GitHub and looking for problems to solve and chatting to random geophysicists in the street about what's difficult in their work. I'll, That's right. I'll, I'll probably just hire you, <laughs> you know. Well, you, you we, heard it here first. Uh, this is these are <laughs> this is from the pros. So um, get on it, write a program, show it to some folks. And before we wrap up, I wanna I wanna uh, mention or talk about just briefly what Matt is doing right now. He, we have him uh, h- hidden away in some random conference room talking to us over the internet. So what are you doing up there at the Atlantic? Something geological site. Yeah, the Geoscience Society annual meeting or colloquium, as it's as it's affectionately called. Uh, yeah, I'm out here on location in Truro, Nova Scotia. It's pretty exciting. Uh, it's a very, very parochial but very sweet and actually kind of awesome meeting. Uh, I come every couple of years. Um, you know, there's, it's a it's a cool mixture of like students, including people just doing like honors thesis, presenting their honors thesis research, which I think is just amazing. Anyway, I couldn't have talked about my any rubbish work I did in undergrad. So I have, you know, it's, it's really cool to see to see those young people um, getting involved in the profession like that. And then guys, mostly guys, a few women too, at the other end of their career sort of spectrums, still out in the field, Still, you know, giving talks at conferences, asking cool questions, um, being involved, totally involved in in the cultural side of it. So, yeah, you know, it's again, it comes down to passion. I it comes out rename that the, the title of this episode was going to be small software for big companies, but maybe it'll have to be passionate programmers or I, something. I like think that. it's about passion. It's about communication. I yes. always tell the guys that work for me, look, if you're if you're any good and we figure that out because of this program you wrote. Yeah. Writing the code, surprisingly, will not be the hardest thing you do. Yeah. Mm. The hardest thing you do will be figuring out just what it is you're supposed to do. Yeah. And if you can't communicate, if you can't get out there and make your thoughts known, if you can't be quiet and listen, you can't get this work done. And uh, it, it selects for a certain kind of person, and it's the kind of person we enjoy working with. 
words of wisdom. Sebastian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. All right, right, guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye.